Hello, welcome back to Beetroot, the poetry podcast brought to you by the University of Amsterdam. I am your host, Lottie, and this week I'm missing my better half. Uh, she's not feeling so well today, so I will crack on by myself and I'd love to invite to the show um, theatre maker and humanities scholar Catherine Lort. Hello, Catherine. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, and Catherine comes from what she describes as a leave voting part of Lancashire in England. Um, and Catherine, would you like to tell us the poem you've brought with you today? I've brought in WB Yeats's famous poem, The Second Coming, Great. which was written in 1919, published yes. in 1920, just at the end of World War I. And would you like me to read it out? Yes, I would love that. <clears throat> Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the centre cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed timed is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming? Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles any sight. Somewhere in the sands of a desert, a shape with lion body in the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. Wow, thank you so much, Catherine. Um, would you like to share with us why you chose this poem? From the first point I read it when I was at Cambridge, I couldn't put it down. And there's a uh, student, there's a fellow student there, um, who's now a full professor in London, who said that he could not read it. And he said the line that just filled him with terror was the last line about the bee slouching towards Bethlehem. Hmm. And there's something about it which, at a visceral level, when we were students, we were living in safer times. And why it came back was I was very aware of these states of emergency we're living in at the moment mm. and the fact that it has become a favourite poem for the press. There is, uh, I think there was, uh, I saw a site in America which was um, WB8 for Trump's Times. And I think it's almost become a cliche, the centre will not hold things fall apart. Mm. Uh, all sorts of books and articles are coming out with those with those titles, because they're referring to our current states of emergency. So on the one hand, it's a modish poem. On the other hand, I don't think it's being understood at a deep level, because it's those two lines about things falling apart and the centre not holding. I mean, we lit literally see that with populism. We're going to the far, far right, yeah. far, far left. That centre is beginning to unravel. And so people, the pundits, use that line. But I think there's a far profounder level to the poem that we're not actually looking at. Mm. Yeah, it certainly is very politically relevant for, t uh, relevant for today. 
Um, so perhaps you can tell us a little bit about how it relates to W.B. Yeats himself. He wasn't just a poet. He was born in 1865, died in 1939. I mean, died before World War II was over. Mm. He wasn't just a poet. He was a mystic and an activist. Yeah. And, of course, we know of his famous Easter 1916 poem. He was a political activist. He was anti the colonialism of uh, the UK in Ireland. A lot of his poetry is a, a mix of him, a poet, and a mystic, somebody believing in mythology of place, mm. that this, your land has spirit and that your spirits have to be protected from the colonizer, yeah. basically. And as a, as a political activist, really, on all sorts of levels, but particularly when it came to, I suppose, what we would call freeing yourself from the union now, um, <laughs> he, was, he was particularly focused on that and... Of course, he's he's put in with the greats, James Joyce, Samuel Beckett, W.B. Yeats. Mm. You know, you hear the canonical Irish writers are often that group of writers, although completely different because Beckett and Joyce's writing had a different focus, and their 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 main work was emerging um, sort of during after World War Two. I mean, mm. Beckett was picking up the pieces after the mess, but I think Yeats was in the heart of a chaos and wrote from the heart of a chaos. Um, and talked about, he's got a wonderful essay where he talks about what a poet should be. They should be like Christ coming out of a desert and they should have only fed on some locusts. Uh, and that's his mysticism, the idea of clearing out your system but being so politically tuned in, it's not true. Yeah. And that's why I think there's something astonishing about him and his work because we tend to associate mysticism or spirituality with something non-political. Mm. <clears throat> and I think what we need now is the spiritual and the political, the mythological and the political coming together yeah. at a significant level. Yeah, certainly. Um, that really uh, interested me, what you said about being so politically engaged uh, despite your writing. Um, do you think there's something that writers and artists and activists could take from W.B. Yeats and his practice? just came to me last night because I knew I was coming here today. I put on BBC mm. and there were artists there talking about all artists now are coming to the climate change crisis. It was an artist who's put all this amazing sort of cladding over parts of the ice in the Arctic and yeah. it's an amazing. And she was saying this is what we need now. We need all artists to turn up politically. It's... Um, and it's something that uh, Toni Morrison said shortly before she died. You're complaining about Trump. This is the moment. Do your job. Mm. Um, do the work. Do your work. Sometimes people think to be political, particularly in theatre, means you can be a bit preachy, which you don't want to. But mm. I think really strong artists and really strong writers show you the characters, show you what's going on in their suffering and their joy, but they're very, very smart about revealing a political context. You can't escape political context. We're organisms and environments. We're not apart from. It's one of my pet hatreds when somebody says to me, I don't do politics. I said, then you don't do people. Greek mm -hmm. root of politics is people. You don't do human rights. You don't do can you be paid properly and have a place to sleep if you don't do politics. Mm. Is that basic? Do you think WB Yeats did people? I think that he was, he was basically, he was very social, he was very committed to people, he was very committed to his, um, to the country he lived in. Mm. It's that odd paradox of you're the poet, you have to stand out and not internalise ideologies. 
mm. right? Yeah. <laughs> it's really hard. Mm. It's what uh, Shelley said about poets are the unacknowledged legislators of mankind. Mm. Well, it be person kind now. But you are in that knife-edge position. You have to be absolutely involved, yeah. which he was. He was deeply involved. And you have to be really connected to people. And yet you've got to be able, I suppose, to step out and go into the desert before you come back, mm -hmm. which is imagination. So artists are visionaries. They are imaginers. Yeah. So what they have to do is imagine a better world, but you can't imagine it without the templates of what you're doing. I'm not sure that a poet can be a politician. And I think of, uh, I think of uh, theatre makers who've gone into politics and become politicians. They have to leave certain things behind for the rigorous pragmatism of policy. Mm. It's a very difficult mix, but I think it's inevitable. Yeah, it does remind me of something uh, he once said, um, which is, of the quarrel we have with others, we make dialogue, and of the quarrel we Absolutely. have with ourselves, we make poetry. Yes. And I think he's treading a, a perfect line in, in this poem yes. of others and himself. Is there a line that you particularly, that screams to you? In this particular poem, the one that I can't get out of my head is the best lack all intention. Mm. Sorry, the best lack all conviction. conviction. And it seems like a judgmental line, and it isn't. So it's the best lack all conviction, and it can't be separated from while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Mm. You see all the women politicians who've said, I can't cope with all these death threats, and I'm not, this is a toxic environment, I'm leaving. Mm. I'm not going to be in politics anymore. And you see um, other women uh, MPs are saying, I'm just going to have to stick it out, like Anna Soubry. Yeah, um, perseverance. And conviction, conviction is a very powerful thing. It means you sometimes have to stick to it, even if you're going to get stabbed, mm. like Joe Cox, or even have all these death threats. Yeah. But who would want to? I mean, I'm perfectly respectful of people who are saying in the middle ground, which mm. doesn't hold, this is too dangerous, this job. I'm getting death threats. And, of course, what women get in terms of sexual assault, toxic discourse on social media is appalling. And you think, well, who would do that? Mm. And I, I don't think that line for me now, if all these lines rework themselves as we go through time, the best. I think the best are having a difficult job, finding a way of having that conviction in a way that's safe and not putting themselves at risk. And it's a horrible, toxic atmosphere, politics. Mm. I mean, it's vicious. If you think about the number of death threats you get when you stand up for something, yeah. or even when you're trolled on Twitter for saying something. Mm. I mean, I had my first troll the other day. It's deeply unpleasant, and it, it stays with you for an hour or two, and you've got to be pretty tough to put up with it. Yeah. So if you're getting that daily... I mean, Anna Subri said with by 12 o'clock, she might get about 100 death threats. Mm. Online. It's interesting, actually, how uh, we are relating the second coming back to the current political mm. climate. And mm. yet WB Yeats, I'm sure, experienced um, enough persecution and abuse in his time as a poet, but he never had the uh, the rivalry of social media to contend with, no. which has completely shaped the way politics operates on a, on a personal and, and public level. Mm. So... And that... That does make a concentration of discourse where we talk about deregulation and it's not deregu just deregulation of financial markets, it's deregulation of discourse. Mm. And can poetry, how can poetry put that right? Yeah. So we have a discourse of extremes. Mm. 
Mm. How does poetry adjust to that? This slouching beast. Yeah, you know, let's is talk about this, that. Is the slouching beast the place where truth, where truth and the ability of the word to attach to a meaning, mm. is that what crumbles into this messy slouching? I mean, what is, what is, what is hell? Isn't it a place where you can't find meaning anymore, where the words don't do the job, where mm. somebody can say, um, all these people are evil, you can't do this to a president. Um, everything I did in the Ukraine is perfectly all right. I mean, that sort of yeah, detachment a between... a place of justification. Well, that sort of... That sort of... It's also this, this, this dislocation between words and meaning. Um, the idea, for instance, that somebody who's left of centre is a communist... No, they're different words. They have different meanings. Mm. Um, one of the first casualties of war is meaning. Mm. And so we have all these double thinks and double speaks and everything that Orwell's talked about. And I think that these lines about falling apart and beasts, and I think this beast is this slouching coming from this cradle. I think the line about the cradle is very important mm. because a lot of what's happening now has been cradled for 40 years. Yeah. Uh, it's been going on for a long time. The cradle never goes away. So we think we have peace times. We think we have times where there aren't states of emergency. But all the while, even through the 70s and the 80s, this cradle is rocking backwards and forwards and it's waiting mm. and it's to do with the pressures of economy and it's to do with the pressures of politics but climate change and that's climate breakdown I should say and that's when I come to the spiritual aspect because there is that line for me which really tells about this comes out of a spiritus mundi yeah. and the spiritus mundi is the idea really it's a raw very very ancient idea that people now think of as the Gaia system. <clears throat> and the idea that the planet's an organism, a living, breathing organism that we need to look after, otherwise we're gone, we are extinct, we become part of a species extinction which we have perpetrated mm. and perpetuate. The Spiritus Mundi is that idea that the, the Earth is a spirit. And it's a spirit where we're part of spirits. Now, for Yeats, it was, in a way, rather like William Blake, but... Not quite the same. Mm. The idea of spirits and ghosts is dead normal. I mean, you still have that in Dublin. There was a there was a radio show where a woman rang and said, "I saw some fairies on the water." That's okay. Yeah. That's okay in that culture because mm. there are there's a whole kind of culture and mythology of spirit mm. and a beautiful one. And, and I a think beautiful that's one. what he captures in his poetry. He He's does very that attached all the time. to that idea. You know, we call it indigenous people now in the Amazon rainforest, but this idea that your earth has spirit, and I think the the onslaught against spirit in a in this awful sort of antichrist that's coming up mm. but the the important thing about it about the time going round this is a poem about apocalypse not destruction so the whole idea that it will come around but you can regenerate mm. and that's why the spirit is monday is important because it's the idea for the ancients that the spirit of the earth can regenerate so there's hope in this poem yeah. so for me that spirit is monday is the hope not Armageddon, but this is a poem about apocalypse. So things go round in circles and things should heal up one day, yeah. we hope. There's such a meeting of the old and the new. I mean, even in the title, the ambiguity of the second coming. Yeah. Something that's happened before that yes. will happen again. again. And mm. history repeating itself is something yes. we're so familiar with. Um, I perhaps like to explore the symbolism and the imagery that Yeats um, focuses on in this poem. 
um, such as the falcon, the beast. Yes. The the animalistic quality he brings to a political climate and a revolution in some sense. What do you make of that? I think that it goes straight back to the Animus Mundi. I don't think it's a coincidence that we have falcons and a falconer, the human. For me, now reading it, the human and the non-human, the mm. animal. I mean, the falcon is a great metaphor because it's about circling and seeing things at a height, at a distance, giving it the big overview, um, but there's disconnect. Mm. And there's something terrifying about the falcon who won't come down. Something can't be controlled anymore and something is running amok. And, and it's the order of things. I suppose it's what Foucault called the order of things, but it's nature. And using nature imagery is very important for that in the sense that when nature's out of joint, you know that everything else is out of joint. So the falcon isn't behaving itself. Um, The beast as well. The beast is something that comes up from the mud, from down in the volcanic mess. It's actually all part of a spiritus mundi, but the spiritus mundi can be warped Mm. and twisted around. And I think that the animal imagery and the blood dim tide, the fact that there's blood, the fact that it's organic. So there's blood in the tide, there's a falcon, we need a beast. And all these images are important for connecting everything to nature back to Spiritus Mundi. For Yeats, as for that whole tradition, I think, of a more consciously animus, animus poetry, is nature is essential to your discourse, is essential to your life, and it gives you omens and signs. I mean, that'd be normal for William Blake, you know, be sitting there working and an angel turns up for a conversation. I mean, that's, you know, that's his inner conversation, yeah. not his rude dialogue with the neighbours who probably... Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for Yeats, there's another sort of... It's common sense, the ghosts turn up, the families turn up, the great, you know, the great-grandparent ghosts are there, the ancestors are there. Mm-hmm. I don't like overusing the word indigenous, but that sen- sense of something which people are now talking about more and more is the mythography and the mythology of place Mm. what i think of as positive nativism very positive nativism not the sort of awful populist far-right nativism which claims to be about protecting place but actually isn't Mm. not really because it's too blood It, it would would prefer to see the blood in the ocean yeah and how does it feel for you reading this poem because it's certainly is written in the style of a conjuring. I feel as if yes. the, spirit, the spiritus mundi is being summoned. Yes. So how does it feel for you to read it? To read it, it always kind of... I, I hadn't read it out loud. Do you know, I never dared in my entire life read it out loud. This is the first time <laughs> in my life that I've read this poem out loud. I've read the odd lines. I've read it. But it has felt like a summoning. Like an incantation or something. It is an incantation, and what I hope we're incanting is making meaning. And I think that the best way to deal with this beast, even if it is threatening, is to keep telling the truth. Mm. And the truth isn't just facts or journalism pros are really important we have to present facts we have to tell the truth but we also have to find stories and narratives so you need Greta Thunberg Mm. with her facts going to scientists but you need artists and poets to narrate the spiritus if you will in those facts bring them to life so different modes genres and practices of telling the truth are the way to deal with the beast because the beast wants to slurch around Mm. in murkiness that's how the beast has power 
So you want to keep casting light on and saying, this is a vision, this has truth. So we need that sort of truth, where truth isn't a word that, by the way, becomes hijacked by, oh, it just has to be facts or scientific facts. It has to be different sort of narratives, mm. artistic and scientific. And I think art and science have to get together to work with this Spiritus Mundi. So that would be my incantation, is mm. let's put art and science together so that they can produce these discourses and produce these narratives. Mm. It's interesting... I'm just thinking that this was written in 1919 and perhaps captured the, the zeitgeist of the time. Mm, and exactly a hundred, well, actually exactly a hundred years, years later. Ago. Yeah, yes, exactly. It's not much has changed or there needs to be a, a another second coming. Do we call it a third coming then? And it um, keeps coming. Yeah, yes. it keeps it's coming. coming. So we'll yeah. see you in the next hundred years. Um, yes, if we're still here. What do you think here. of that? Um... I think that the, what is important to iteration and things going in cycles is that certain strong elements have come, come back, perhaps in more harmful ways. I mean, it's something that uh, Chomsky said about Trump was that Germany was quite powerful, but not as powerful as America. So the Germany in Second World Wars was not as powerful anywhere near as mm. technologically armed yeah. as America he said that's really dangerous. So, I mean, the second coming is even yeah. worse. On the other hand, this keep coming back, it's as if when you don't sort something out, back it comes, back it comes, back it... It'll keep coming back till you've sorted it. Mm. And now we have an opportunity to sort it. Yeah. So this awful move, this, this co-modification of people into objects through neoliberal capitalism. What Naomi Klein talks about in On Fire and This Changes Everything mm -hmm. is we've got an opportunity with our world to make it better, precisely because this climate crisis is pushing us to the brink. Mm -hmm. So the second coming, when it comes back, it's worse. And it's saying, sorted. The Spiritus Mundi encanted is saying would you please sort it this time and if you sort it now this could be great for the future and it will come back every time something isn't sorted as a sort of cleansing process which i think is key to a lot of mystical or spiritual practices is that there's bad energy gets stored and you need to release it mm. and it happens through politics and war and terrible things as if they do damage, but you don't want them to do damage this time. This second coming is um, stop cradling, know what to do, and really be a pragmatic artist as much as possible. Mm. And perhaps a, a final question for you, Catherine. What do you think is essential that we take away from the second coming With 100 years later? Um, this is the most ghastly hackneyed phrase which I am reframing. It was key to a political activism in the 1970s and it's come back and you'll, you'll recognise it immediately that the personal is the political. However, I've reframed it into the personal is the spiritual political. Yeah. It's a terrible phrase but it's what I'm working with at the moment. Okay, and is that your contribution to our communal poem? I would like somebody to take the personal as the spiritual political because it would work in a poem if you can riff off it in another direction. Great. But I prefer spiritual political because of the spiritus in the spiritus Monday. Okay, perfect. Um, well, thank you so much for coming out today, Catherine, and joining us on the show. Thank you for having me and giving me an opportunity to do something I'd never done before, which yeah. is read this poem from beginning to end. I hope we've encountered something. Hey.
space for the uh, I feel something space. in the studio. <laughs> um, yes, of course. Thank you so much. You've been listening to uh, Beetroot, a product of Uber Radio. Our theme music is by the Seep and Smink trio, and it's called Life Itself from their album Ravens Are Smart. Our podcast cover is designed by our very own and absent Martin Mutledough, who I'm hoping you will be sending Get Well Soon cards to. Uh, we will see you next week. Goodbye. <laughs>